0: Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event looking at what role should modelling play in a crisis. I'm Gemma Tetlow, I'm the IFG's Chief Economist and I'll be chairing today's event and welcome to all of you both in the room enjoying our air conditioning on this very hot day and to all of those of you watching online as well. And we're delighted today to be partnering with the forum at Imperial College who are kindly sponsoring this event. Modelling and forecasting played a prominent role in the way policies were designed and decisions were made during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the government's handling of that crisis raised questions about how modelling, both epidemiological and economic, was used by ministers. And that's what we want to focus on here today, exploring the role that modelling can play, what it did play during the pandemic and what role it could play for future crises. And to help us explore these questions, we have an excellent panel of experts. Uh, On the far left, we have Ruth Kelly, who's the Chief Analyst at the National Audit Office. Then have Professor Neil Ferguson, who is Director of the MRC Centre for Global Infectious Infectious Disease Analysis at Imperial College London. Joining us online, um, very uh, topically, uh, still on the recovery from having COVID, uh, is Ben Chu, who is Economics Editor of Newsnight. And on my right is Richard Hughes, who's the Chair of the Office for Budget Responsibility. Uh, Just a few brief housekeeping things before we get started. Um, Please do start sending in your questions while we're going through the first part of the event. If you're watching online, you can do that via Slido. Um, Please do tell us your name and where you're tuning in from if you're happy to, because it's always interesting to know who we're talking to. And if you're in the room, then obviously feel free to use the traditional method of putting your hand up when we get to that part of the event. Um, We'll be live tweeting this event from the at IFG events Twitter account using the hashtag hashtag ifgforecast, so please do follow and tweet along. This event is on the record and the video and audio recording will be available on our website uh, within 24 hours if you'd like to listen back or miss any parts of it. So um, Ben, I'll kick off with you. To what extent did communicating the results of highly uncertain epidemiological as well as economic models to the public during the pandemic present new challenges for you?
1: Well, Gemma, I think it, it did present a lot of new challenges. Uh, I'm sorry I can't be here today. Stubborn red line on a on a lateral flow test. Uh, but if I can, I'm, can I can I go in on the really big question? I suppose for me and as, as a representative of the media, of how should these models be communicated for the public to the public? Because that is something that I have grappled with a lot over over recent years. And I think I would start with actually a place where the. That the media needs to understand the political environment in which these models um, uh, are, are, are going into. Because I think there are sadly bad actors out there who, who attack models and attack modelers. We've seen a lot of that over the recent years, essentially because they don't like the results, not because they don't like the science, because they don't like what the models suggest. Um, I don't think changing the minds of that group should be a priority, actually. I think it's other people. I think I would say the majority of people uh, who don't have an ideological position on this, on, on any of these given questions, but are perhaps just a bit confused about the terminology and about what models are. And I think it's important to try and reach those people. That's what I try and do as, as a member of the media. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, I think there are three, three rules I would suggest, and I'll just briefly go through them, Gemma. I think the first one is that, and this applies to economic modelling i think it applies to epidemiological modelling i also think it applies to things like climate modelling as well and i think first of all the language really matters and i think when you're talking about the results of models it's really important to say not this will happen but this but the results suggest this could happen under plausible scenarios and now that, that, may, that might seem sort of splitting hairs talking about language, but I think it really is important for building understanding among the general public about what models are and what they're not. You know, they're not firm forecasts of what is going to happen, but they are plausible possible scenarios. Second one, very briefly, is that caveats really, really matter in communicating models. And I take this to heart uh, in my reporting. So when you're talking about the results, you need to show these are results based on certain assumptions, X, Y, Z. Cool. Cool.
0: Um, Ben, (laughs) I'm very sorry. We've just uh, lost you there. Um, Neil, are we going to get Ben back? we will? Okay, we great. <laughs> ben, if you could just pause that thought and hopefully resume where you were when we just lost you. I think it was just saying number three.
2: This needs to be reconnected.
0: Um, really okay. Else? In that case... Well, well, I will technic- pick up the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Neil, I was going to come to you next anyway. So how much a role... Do you think epidemiological modelling played in the decisions that were made during the pandemic and do you think that was the right amount of weight to put on that sort of modelling?
2: Yeah it's a different circumstance from public communication and modelling Um, that within the UK I mean there was a very well established system for scientific advice which I'm sure you've discussed before and SAGE and many subgroups and, and then modelling a whole dedicated group to modelling producing synthesizing results from 10, 12 different modeling groups across the country and that being shaped into these consensus statements which then went forward to SAGE and ministers together with then lots of individual bespoke work sometimes of government departments, NHS, cabinet office but I actually think we had quite an informed consumer base among the civil service and eventually among ministers I mean, from Matt Hancock to Boris Johnson, learned a lot of epidemiology and learned a lot about the how to interpret uh, modeling output. And, and Ben got it exactly right. The sort of modeling we were doing fell into two different broad camps. One is sort of looking backwards and understanding what happened, better understanding the science through the use of statistical and epidemic models. Um, that tends, tends to be important for looking for the future, but is less controversial doesn't tend to mo- model you know, policy scenarios going forward. The latter, the second type of modeling was kind of prospective modeling, both the short-term projections which were used and which are never quite right, but looking a few weeks forward, what, what's gonna happen with current trends. And then of course, the most controversial, but probably the most useful in policy terms is what I would call you know, counterfactual modeling of future scenarios. Controversial, because you are looking at then different policy options and different potential evolutionary trajectories of the epidemic. And they can always be criticized, as Ben said. I mean, if you want to criticize them, you're never gonna get them right because we can't exactly predict what a policy will do and we're not gonna predict the complexity of human behavior three months hence in terms of exactly what the epidemic trajectory will be. But the reason they're most useful is epidemics just like economies and just like climates, are highly nonlinear complex systems. And so intuition often fails you about what is going to happen. Just the whole concept of exponential growth is something which some policymakers and civil servants struggle with. And so On top of that with with epidemics you have things like immunity building up when will the epidemic peak and so despite the fact they have many frailties you're never going to get every assumption right and it is very important to state what the assumptions are nevertheless they're very powerful and have been very powerful tools throughout the pandemic not just in the uk i mean i know colleagues across europe netherlands i was out in the netherlands recently colleagues in denmark also Policy was significantly influenced, but not dominated, by their own modelling of of the COVID pandemic. What perhaps went wrong, at least in 2020 in the UK, is that I mean, we really didn't determine policy in some sense. Modelers and scientific advisors um, want to be tasked, you know, want to be asked, you know, this is our the government giving us strategic objectives and then we'll go away and say, well, well, these are the different approaches which might deliver those strategic objectives. What we failed to have really in the UK was a strategic objective for managing the epidemic in, in 2020. If we'd been told, given I mean the government's makeup, well, our number one objective is we want to have the least measures possible, but still avoid overwhelming the NHS, then you can go away and model different scenarios and come back and say, these are the pluses, these are the minuses. In reality, it tended to be a lot more reactive. And unfortunately, that meant that in some cases, the lessons weren't learned. Um, Three quarters of the deaths in the UK happened after 1st of September, um, 2020. Um, So in some sense, the UK has been criticized, The government has been criticized, scientists have been criticized for the slow response to the first wave. But those same mistakes were made again in the second wave, um, and I don't think that is part. Is, I don't think that's anything to do with modelling. I think that's a lot more to do with the you know, political environment we exist, in, which was in place at the time.
0: Great, thank you, um, Richard. You were doing a different type of modelling during the pandemic, which was worrying about how the economy was going to evolve. How did you, at the OBR, have to adapt your normal modelling approach to the great uncertainty that there was?
3: So we had to adapt them a great deal. And I think to some extent we had to set them to one side during the pandemic, because if you think about how the conventional macroeconomic models work, well, they typically assume a fixed rate of growth and supply, and then all the shocks emanate from the demand side of the economy in the kind of classic Keynesian business cycle around a sort of fixed rate of growth and supply. They don't typically break down by sector. So they just have households, government, corporations, and the rest of the world, but they don't tell you They don't have a restaurant sector, they don't have a a travel sector, they don't have a financial services sector. Um, And also they assume that activity uh, after a shock happens naturally returns to some equilibrium. Um, And so supply and demand balance and the economy kind of reverts to its long run trend rate of growth, so they're sort of mean reverting. try and deal with a pandemic in that context, that sort of model just really doesn't work. The pandemic affected both supply and demand simultaneously. People both couldn't go to work and they couldn't go to the shops. So (laughs) you had a shock to kind of both sides of both supply and demand and had to understand that. The shock was highly differentiated compared to the other kinds of recessions that we've um, faced in the past, differentiated by sector. So you really needed a model which could allow you to separately model the hospitality sector where output fell by 90% at the start of the, financial, the, of the uh, pandemic. Um, whereas you had a, the financial services sector only contracted by 5% at the start of the pandemic. And then understanding the evolution of those sectors over the course of the pandemic was really important. How much activity was possible in different sectors of the economy at different times. And so we needed to build more or less from scratch a sectoral model of the economy that operated month by month to tell us um, where the economy was gonna go, um, over the course of the pandemic, and then finally, uh, you know, COVID was an exogenous constraint on demand. This wasn't a shock that emanated from within the economy. It wasn't a consumer consumer confidence shock. It wasn't a sort of investor confidence shock. It was more akin to rationing during wartime. It was a constraint put from outside outside the economic system on the economy to try and deliver a particular public health outcome while the vaccine was uh, was. Um, being developed and rolled out. So it was really important to us to be able to forecast the economy to understand how was the pandemic evolving? What was the timetable for vaccines being developed and rolled out? um, And then how effective were those vaccines going to be in allowing our economic lives to go back to some version of normality over a period of time? And so what we realized we needed to do very quickly in putting together our own forecast was, first of all, talk to epidemiologists. And so we sat down with SAGE, we sat down with SPYM, which was the sort of modeling wing of, of SAGE. Um, at the beginning of every forecasting round to just get a sense of where are we in the course of this pandemic? You know, what do the next few months look like? What are the next few years look like? And we just went through the same set of questions about the near term um, and, and the medium term and get their sense of, of, of what the course of the pandemic was gonna look like. Um, we then had to break the economy down into sectors and think about based on what they told us how, how much of each sector could be open at a different point in time? Sort of pre-vaccine rollout, post-vaccine rollout, and then over the longer term, how much of that sector is ever going to go back to some some version of normality? And then we also had to assume a dynamic response between uh, demand and supply. In that, uh, you know, as it turned out, what we discovered was that demand can recover much more quickly and much more aggressively than supply can. And so, once the economy is reopened. You had lots of pent-up savings in households, which was suddenly dumped onto an economy, which you know, we now understand has had experienced bottlenecks from not being able to access key inputs. Logistics was a huge issue in getting manufactured goods to, uh, to Western economies that had reopened and wanted to buy them. And so understanding you know, where demand and supply were relative to each other as economies reopened was also really important. And it's something which we're still grappling with and trying to understand now as we deal with the inflationary consequences that came out of first the pandemic and now out of what's happened in, in, in Europe.
0: All right. Thank you. Um, ben, are you back with us now? We can see you.
1: I am. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so at least.
0: In that case, I will come back to you. So um we had just you'd been running through your list of five things and we you talked about language mattering and caveats mattering, but I think that was
1: Don't worry, it was only it was only three things. So I'll just briefly finish off. So yeah, language really matters. Use the language of will. Uh, don't use the language of will. Use could. Uh, caveats matter. Talk about the assumptions that are going into the model, and really take time to explain to audiences what those assumptions are, because that's necessary, I think, to build the public understanding. As I said, of what a what a model is, and uh, and uh, the underlying mechanisms that you're talking about, which is the really important thing to to, to get across to to audiences. And finally, um, I think accountability matters. So you should, I think. Media and actually models should revisit their previous models and evaluate where outcomes actually differed from what was expected in main scenarios and pinpoint which assumptions turned out to be wrong. Um, you know, whether that's the virulence of the virus or or, or or that public behavior was different in economic terms. And I think that's really important because it's necessary to build trust. Both in modelling techniques and in modelers themselves, that that accountability is there. Because I think this is a key point. This is a repeat game. We're going to hopefully keep using models in public policy, and we need to have public trust in them. And I think that accountability one is really important in undergirding uh, the whole uh, the whole scene. So I think you know, keep. I would say when I talk about models in my reporting, I try and keep to those. Try and always try and have those three elements really foremost in my mind, because I think they are, are crucial in how you communicate them effectively and build public understanding of them.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Ben. The, the accountability is a great segue to come to you, Ruth, because obviously the National Audit Office play a crucial role in accountability for what government does in the UK. But you've mm. particularly been looking at financial modelling within government. Do you say a bit about how that was used by departments to try and predict the sort of demand and spending pressures they were facing. Yeah,
4: absolutely. And I think um, maybe abstracting a little bit from the pandemic, it's probably first useful to to understand that government relies on thousands of models in general to to run its business. And so that's for testing policy options, understanding costs, forecasting demand, um, understanding risks. And it's it's a really really important part of of evidence-based decision-making. And that was then even more so during the pandemic. Um, and we, we look at a lot of models. Um, we, we, as you say, we, we had this um, our report we published earlier in the year on, on financial modelling in government. We, we also had a big programme of work looking at um, the government response to the pandemic. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot to dig into there, but maybe just two, two themes to pull out. Uh, the, the one is around um, you know, models underpin decisions which really have a big influence on people's lives, as, as, as we've been talking about. And so it's really important that people who use those models can be, have confidence in their quality and their robustness. And we, we look at a lot of models um, through our financial audit work and, and through our, our value for money work. Um, and we continue to see risks to value for money from how models are produced and, and used. We, we regularly find errors in government models. Um, and you know, there's obviously a lot of very good practice out there, but there's also quite, quite a lot of variability in the approach to quality assurance and, the, um, and performance things like um, some of the issues we've highlighted are around a lack of independent review, which which can quite often um, lead to risks of of errors, Uh, things like inappropriate or or poor quality assumptions and and so on. So that's kind of one, I think one theme. And the other theme is is really picking up on some of the the points that that Neil and and Ben made earlier around sort of the the limitations and the the uncertainty inherent in modeling. And that was obviously even more so during the pandemic. So it's really important that Model users really understand the, the full range of outcomes from, from a model. Um, if they don't, there's a risk that the plans that they make off the back of those models might be not resilient enough or, or too optimistic. Um, and then the case studies that we looked at, we quite often found that government is still too reliant on, on best estimates, um, and there's not enough I guess there's, there's, there's not enough uh, work done to develop contingency plans um, to take account of where there are uncertainties. You know, two, two examples, I think, from, from the pandemic. One is test and trace. So right at the beginning, um, huge uncertainties in, design, in, in demand and the sort of the, the um, progression of the virus and what they would mean for test and trace services. Um, and I think in August 2020, the, the utilisation of, of test and trace, their, their contact traces, went down to about a per- a 1%. Um, but they couldn't flex staffing levels because there was too much... Um, there wasn't any flexibility in the contracts. Uh, and he's obviously, you know, flexibility is not free. There's a trade-off between cost and, and flexibility, but um, given how uncertain things were, uh, that was the sort of lesson that they learned, and then in the 2021-22 20, contracts, a lot more flexibility was built in, in terms of those contracts. Um, and maybe another, kind of to end on a, on a positive note, um, we saw something quite quite good from Department and Work and Pensions, Uh, where they had developed a number of scenarios of how the pandemic would progress and what they would mean for workloads of people who were administering benefits. And they identified that there was a sort of plausible range of of workloads where they might need to redeploy people from elsewhere in DWP. Uh, And so they trained those people up in advance so that they could, if necessary, deploy them quickly. So that's a really good example of of dealing with uncertainty and making contingency plans off, off the back of that.
0: Fantastic, thank you. Um, So to come to a few questions for all of you then, perhaps we can start with the question of capability within government for constructing these types of models and thinking about how to use them within policymaking. Richard, I'll start with you as you're on my right. Um, What's your take on whether government has the necessary capabilities within... Perhaps we can start with with, within the civil service, the ones who are going to need to do the legwork. Is is that a strength for government?
3: I think we found that modelling was not so much putting together the models is not the challenge. Um, the software exists, you can do these things at Excel. I'm not sure what scientists and people will use it, but probably something more sophisticated <laughs> than Excel, but you can do these things in Excel um, and you can put them together very quickly, which is what you obviously needed to do to deal with a pandemic that was moving as quickly as COVID was. I think the things which we, had to find elsewhere and eventually did, but you had to kind of look in the right places were expertise in that, you know, we were very lucky in that we had Sage and Spy Amber as groups that were readily, already set up and people you could talk to who could give you some key judgments to feed into these models. Because big questions are just, when is this pandemic gonna peak? How long is it gonna take? Um, when, do you, when do you come out the other side? At what point might restrictions be lifted? And those aren't, those aren't the outcomes of a model. Those are the judgments you need from other people. And, but the, uh, the other big scarcity was data, where um, it, it, it took a while to search around to find the kind of real-time information that you needed to just understand where the economy was at the moment. So what was your baseline starting point? I remember in, it, was, it was late March, possibly early April uh, you know, of 2020, when the French Statistics Office, ANSEE, came out with the first estimate of what GDP was after a lockdown had been introduced because nobody in the world had collected any GDP data yet. And so as soon as the French said, look, it's 25%, we've lost 25% of output as a result of basically a nationwide lockdown of hospitality and um, various other sectors, suddenly that became the benchmark for everybody else to use to say, okay, a lockdown loses you 25% of GDP. Up until then, people were saying, oh, it could be 5%, it could be 50%, who knows? And then finally, we had a data point to start from and then after that, things like Google mobility data started to be shared quite widely. Um, uh, uh, credit card data from how people were spending their money and how much of their money they were spending versus how much they were saving. Um, that all became really useful inputs into the, the development of those models. But it wasn't so much the skills of the people that was that was lacking. That was definitely there, it was some, some key judgments and some and some useful information to feed into them.
0: And is that something you think government has now learnt? Will we be in a different place for the
3: next crisis? Oh, I hope so. I think certainly the, the kind of institutional model, the, the institutional setups that were designed around the pandemic, I can imagine being quite useful to deal with other kinds of, uh, other kinds of shocks or crises the government might face. Yeah. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Neil, I mean, you were obviously yeah. one of those people providing I expertise mean, so
2: in the UK government. I mean, epidemiological modeling um, has been a strength of the UK for many decades. And some of that exists within um, government in what was called public health England. I think the challenge is with a crisis of this magnitude, or frankly, any significant crisis, anything which requires COBRA to be um, called, is there are always far, far too many questions to be answered. And so you need to have a surge capacity, and it isn't always sensible to maintain that within government. Um, you may remember that something called the jo- Joint Biosecurity Centre was created uh, during the pandemic by Matt Hancock and DHSC to provide internal data analytics support for the pandemic response on the health side. Um, That has now been merged into the new, into Public Health England and what's called the UK Health Security Agency. And actually I think signs so far relatively positive there that they have boosted capacity beyond what they had before, but clearly they're not gonna maintain it at the levels they built up in the pandemic. And so they're also reinforcing partnerships with universities, groups such as my own, in terms of responding to new things such as monkeypox and whatever. So I think always there will be an element of internal capacity and an element of reaching out to particularly academic, in some cases, commercial partners.
4: I think, you know, just to kind of add to that, I think there's also the, that sort of sophisticated modeling, you know, potentially you do need to bring in surge capacity from outside. But then it feeds into so many of the day to day models that government then needs to, you know, that in sort of interpreting role. You take that, that as an input and then you need to use that to work out what does that mean then for the demand for the services of a particular department or what a particular policy choice might be. And so you do very much need that capability within the civil service to, to play that translator role and then to. Um, to feed that into the, the, the very many business-critical models that government has. There's nearly a 1,000 that we found just in the sort of central government departments alone. And I think that the other point is that even if you are contracting out that work, that doesn't absolve the government from needing the right level of, of oversight and assurance to make sure that what they're getting is, is what they need. Um, and you know there's, there, there's a number of examples of where that hasn't worked so well. I think quite, a, quite an example of where it has worked well is um, Bayes for their COVID guarantee models. So the, the, the support to business, there's a number of, of models which, which project um, expected credit losses from those from, from those schemes. Um, and Bayes is ultimately responsible for the funds that have been administered under those schemes, but it's actually managed by British Business Bank. And so uh, you know in this case. BBB ended up asking a a third-party independent provider to build the model, but Bayes provided them with guidance on what kind of quality assurance they wanted. They asked for an internal external audit by the government actuary department, GAD, Um, and all that was what they needed to do in order to to have enough confidence that they could put those estimates into their annual reports because ultimately they are still responsible for them. So you, you really need strength also as a commissioner of models, even if you're not doing the very sophisticated modelling yourself in-house.
0: And what was your overall take from your modelling review? Did, does that seem to be... Is it usually the, the rule that there is that sort of capacity within government?
4: So, so I think there is... Um, the, you know, there's certainly... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of expertise within government, and that's something which the analysis function and professions like the um, government um, operations research service are, are very focused on developing. I think the, the main thing that we found is that there's a lot of variability. So there are some really excellent pockets of good practice, there are some areas where it's, it's not so strong, um, and there's very little central oversight of whether requirements that are set around modelling, and, and then there's, there's lots of government guidance on, on what's expected, including our accounting officers. There's not very much oversight of the extent to which those requirements are being met, um, and also whether there are any opportunities for learnings, so taking a more system-wide view and looking for, for pockets of good practice and, and then just sort of disseminating those more widely. So that, those are you know, really some of the things we've been
0: recommending in, in our work. So shifting a bit of focus then to, ultimately it's really politicians who have to interpret the outputs of these types of models and make decisions on the back of that. They're almost certainly not going to be experts in any one of these areas of modeling. What's each of your takes on how, at the moment, politicians are being communicated with and whether that can be done any more effectively to avoid what you were alluding to, Ruth, of kind of planning just on the basis of the central assumption and not recognising the uncertainty? Um, Ben, I don't know, I mean, you've obviously had to think a lot about how do you communicate the uncertainty and trying to interpret that uncertainty that's coming out of government, and you're obviously looking at how politicians made decisions on that basis. What's your take?
1: Well, I think it would depend on the politician in question, Gemma. I think um, it's hard to know how much, what briefing they've had from civil servants and the quality of that briefing. I think on the basis that they are, um, well, some of them at least are, are, are making their views on the basis of the headlines in the media, though, I think I would be quite worried because... I think this is, this comes this feeds into what I was saying before, but I think in headlines in broadcast and newspaper media find it very difficult to distinguish between unconditional forecasts of what will happen and plausible model scenarios which could be averted through action. the public and I, I suspect some ministers and politicians would be included in this see a see a model outcome and think, well, that's what's going to happen. Rather than that's something which plausibly could happen, uh, and we need to take action to avert it happening. And then when it then when it doesn't happen, the argument goes that well the model was wrong, and actually all models are wrong. So we shouldn't base our any of our policy making or decisions about how we run our lives and the actions we take on this uh, this sort of science of modelling because it's flawed. So I think. I mean, I'm not best placed to say how ministers are getting their information, but on the basis that they are, in some respects at least, similar to broad swathe of the public in in the way they get their information, I would say there is a problem there. And I would go back to those three principles I outlined earlier about basically educating both the general public and politicians better about what models are and what they aren't and the difference between uh, conditional forecasts and unconditional forecasts and plausible scenarios.
0: Neil, I mean, this was obviously came a lot during the pandemic of people saying, oh, but the model was wrong. It didn't happen like I mean, that. Yeah. Do you, what are your reflections on what, what I mean, you
2: learned? From... A, I mean, you're never going to be right predicting a scenario three months ahead. Um, I mean, it is a scenario and, and often there's uncertainty around it. So I would distinguish slightly. I think that was well communicated to government. Um, and I think the you know, technical civil service, Patrick Villanz, Chris Whitty did a good job in doing that. Of course, if you go into SAGE documents and want to generate a telegraph story, then that's quite easy to do, but it doesn't actually reflect very much about how those models were used. Um, As to, I I completely agree. I mean, it is down to the politician, even a well-educated politician. I was ahead of this, I was just reflecting back that the first model of, of global warming, another crisis we're dealing with, was generated in 1938, first mathematical model. It was something actually predicted by scientists back in the 19th century. And and most of the projections we have now were um, put all together in a report published in 1979. (laughs) So in some sense, the science has got better and better and and more and more certain, Um, but you do need politicians willing to actually absorb that evidence and and make policy based on it for modeling to have an impact.
0: Richard, I mean, you, you obviously do both your sort of five-year forecasts and your much longer-term projections. How, how do you try and convey that uncertainty and get that into policy making?
3: I think we do a, a few things. One is that, well, when, and in, in some ways, we kind of follow the model that Sage and SPYM followed, which is, for one thing, you, you crowdsource um, uh, different, model, different models rather than just relying on your own. Um, there are lots of different people who look at these issues from slightly different perspectives and come to slightly different answers. And you get a lot out of kind of putting those in a in a big hopper and kind of averaging averaging them to get to get a sense of where the professional consensus is. And I think that also that helps when you're an individual modeller talking to a minister or 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 anybody else to say, look, this isn't just me telling you this. This is the assembled views of everybody who's looked at these kind of questions from lots of different perspectives. And so I think crowdsourcing is important, but I I think also scenarios are really important. Um, And saying, look. If you don't buy this set of assumptions, give me your assumptions, and I'll plug them in and show you that either the future looks very different, or actually the future doesn't look very different. Um, uh, if you take a different assumption about the behavioural response, length of lockdowns, anything else, um, and so so in that sense, I think it's also important to uh, you know not just have a not just have a single forecast, but have a range of scenarios. I, I think one of the real challenges. Um, on your question about working with ministers and decision makers is actually to get them to engage in the downside scenarios for these sorts of things. And I, I think it, it is a tribute to Neil and his colleagues that um, the downside scenarios that we were looking at didn't materialize. But there was a world where when we were all waiting for the first set of results from vaccines, that, that, that they didn't work. Um, and then we were stuck in a scenario where we basically had to adapt our mode of economic life to something very different from what existed before the pandemic. And uh, we did get lucky. and. There wasn't a lot of sign of, uh, you know, in in any country of anybody actually preparing for that downside scenario where vaccines didn't come along. So I think to some extent, you know, lots of countries had economic strategies for the central scenario and for the sort of up, upside scenario where things where vaccines were even more effective than we'd hoped, which were the one we sort of turned out to be in. But nobody really had a plan for the for the downside scenario.
4: Mm-hmm. If, if I can come in on that one, I, I think it's. It's also about how, um, how those those scenarios are then converted into contingency plans or kind of you know a policy response. And that is something that we have found that, you know, systematically there have been weaknesses uh, you know, in, in a lot of our work. So when we think about major projects, we often find that um, there's sort of insufficient um, uh, acceptance of the levels of, of risk and complexities, particularly in early estimates. And so there's not enough contingency allowed uh, when we looked at um, a lot of our EU exit work, we found that qu- quite often, um, you know, the civil service could have dealt with uncertainty better. For example, you know, c- developing m- scenarios, multiple scenarios about w- what potential outcomes could be, and then developing contingency plans to address those, uh, not just the the scenario that was the, the preferred one. Um, and I think that's that's also come out to some extent with, with COVID, where there wasn't necessarily a playbook to deal with many aspects of of the, the COVID response, even though, um, you know pre-pandemic planning had often identified those issues as as something which might need a a response that they weren't in place. So it's also translating that uncertainty then into into some kind of action or response.
0: And is your Um, take on it that that's a problem at all layers within government? So it's not just that ministers aren't giving civil servants the steer to prepare that contingency. It's also that lower down through the civil service, they're just not anticipating that. They're not pushing the need for that.
4: I think there's there's a there's an undue focus on best estimate. So most a lot of information is presented as a best estimate, uh, and if there is uncertainty analysis, it's often buried in an annex. Um, you know, so so the, the starting point is actually making that information available as as part of the core message. You know, we, this is a nice example that um, when HMIC present their tax credits, um, fraud and error estimates. they present that with a central estimate and then a 95% confidence 95% confidence interval around that. But that's part of the headline. Like that's that's the that's the the way in which you receive the information rather than then buried separately. Um, so, I, so I think in general there's, there's a lot more that can be done. And one of the recommendations in our report is that why the Treasury as a, um, as a as a big user of, of government of, of outputs from for models um could do more to, to really encourage that, that type of analysis. And so generally, the initial submissions to Treasury are um, in the form of a best estimate that departments make. And then often there'll be a challenge process after that, and, and you know, on a case-by-case basis, people, the Treasury will dig into those estimates. But what we've recommended is that as a matter of course, Treasury requires information to be presented uh, in the form of, of, of a range of outcomes with obviously the most material sources of uncertainty. So there's, there's things which commissioners of information within the system can do to improve
0: things. Right. One thing that was quite striking during the pandemic was the different degree of transparency around different types of models that were informing government policy. You had huge transparency in a way around the epidemiological models that were going to SAGE and absolutely no transparency around the economic models that were informing uh, parts of what government were doing. Um, What do you each think about that? How valuable is transparency in helping people to understand and improve the quality of the modelling anyway? And what does stand in the way of providing transparency about all of these models, not just the epidemiological ones? Richard, perhaps I can start with
3: you. Um, I I think it's hugely important to be transparent about uh, uh, what you you think is going on, B, how you then set up the models to predict what you know about the present um, could mean about the future, and then B, the errors and and, uh, different possible futures that you could end up in. I think from the OBR's point of view, we did that as early as April, 2020. So within a month of of the pandemic sort of hitting well lockdown starting, we tried to create a set of scenarios and publish them so that people could get a sense of what was going to happen. And I guess particularly in the context of a novel crisis like the pandemic, it just was. It was. It was important not just for government, but just for people to understand um, what the economic consequences could be, and that means people to make their own decisions about their own economic lives, businesses to make their own decisions about how to run their businesses, and you saw the reaction. That economically, you saw the reaction people had to just getting more information. Um, over time, they managed to adapt the way that they behaved. They found ways to, to get back to work. They found ways to shop online rather than shopping. Um, you know, waiting. You know, waiting for the shops to reopen, and so. Providing information in the context of a crisis is really important because it allows people to adapt their behavior to the crisis and do some kind of planning ahead, um, which uh, people couldn't do early on in the early on in the pandemic because people just didn't know what the future was going to look like.
0: Do you have any sense, one of the other things that you do in your longer term modeling is things like climate change modeling. Do you have any sense that that sort of modeling affects behavior over longer periods
3: of time. I I think so, although uh, with the caveat that Neil makes that it 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 can take a very long time um, (laughs) for the results of that kind of work to filter into people's understanding. And it it probably is, it it can be weeks, it can be months, it can be decades. Um, And and to to some extent people wait for sort of confirmatory events. And I know we're not supposed to uh, associate higher temperatures today with what's coming out of the modelling from climate change but to some extent people wait for a handful of reads which actually confirm what the model has been telling them before they start to believe um the models so i i think it can take it can take a bit of time to get to get some kind of reaction Mm
0: -hmm. ben as a journalist how how much do you think transparency because i mean in a sense there is a potential danger to government of being very transparent about things because people might find things that government didn't want to be open about (laughs) overall it does really
1: help with the quality well, yes yeah i would uh, always urge government ministers to urge our civil servants actually to urge on the side of transparency uh for that reason of public trust which i mentioned in my initial remarks uh, it's interesting i think transparency is so important for public trust but also transparency not about just what is being modeled but what isn't being modeled as well uh, there's a speech which I think has just come out from Claire Lombardelli. I think is the chief economist at the Treasury, about the Treasury's use of economic modelling in the in the pandemic, and I think it's really interesting because this didn't. I wasn't quite clear at the time, but she's saying that they didn't model the economic impact of lockdowns because they couldn't come up with a reasonable counterfactual about what would happen if you didn't lock down. They didn't feel they had that counterfactual, that they could produce those kind of quantified numerical pounds and pence estimates of the impacts of lockdown, which is perfectly fine, but it would have been useful to know that at the time when there was a lot of talk about the Treasury suppressing impact assessments or suspicion of this happening because it showed such dire impacts. So transparency, not only about what the assumptions are going, that are, are going into your models, but what you've chosen not to model is really, really important in these um, circumstances where people's livelihoods uh, uh, are at stake is the point I would make. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting um, speech that you refer to there, Ben, giving a bit of insight into what the Treasury were and weren't doing during the pandemic. I think there was, there was one interesting point that came out of that from Claire, who was saying essentially those detailed models were incredibly uncertain. We didn't know what assumptions should go in, and that they didn't felt that those models got them really any further than the basic intuition that you would have, which is interesting in what you were saying, Neil, that actually you think basic intuition can fail you in when with some of these types of of models? I think it
2: depends on the stage. So arguably that, that is true back in March, 2020. You have a, you know, hospitalizations doubling every three days. You have a disease with a certain lethality. You can actually do a very simple model to say, you know, this is going to be very bad if we let it continue. Where it becomes much more complicated is you have immunity in the population, the virus evolving, you're rolling out vaccination. Their intuition does start to fail. Um, coming to the transparency point, I mean, thinking back all the way back to March, April 2020, there was a lot of criticism of government in terms of you didn't even know who was on SAGE, um, modelling wasn't public. um, And so that did change radically over the pandemic um, in those first few months more than anything else. There are some caveats to it, um, particularly at times where you have enormous amounts of uncertainty you can be generating some quite scary, and we were generating some really quite scary scenarios back in February of 2020. Um, that would, and we had no time to carefully communi- you know, spend days you know, coming up with a document which presents all the uncertainties around it. I mean, working in real time, uh, coming back to Ben's bad actor point, if they'd just been thrown into the public domain, they, that, there would have been some consequences to that. Um, undoubtedly. Um, what Sage moved to was this basically putting a somewhere between a two and a six week delay on release of documents, just to allow that internal private discussion time with, without having this parallel discussion in real time in the media about which, which isn't always constructive. Yeah.
4: I think what we found that, I mean, as an auditor, I'd obviously say transparency is hugely important. It's a really important tool for, for scrutiny and assurance. But I think also we found that, that during the pandemic, it can also act as a, as a really vital control for accountability where some of your other controls um, perhaps aren't in place. So, you know, perhaps you don't have the time for competitive tendering, but transparency on decision-making acts then as a, as a really useful control. And it's and the points around public trust that, that, that Ben's made as well. Uh, and it's really clear, I think, from, from government guidance that transparency is expected. In fact, it's in the, it's in the guidance to accounting officers uh, managing public money that transparency should be the norm when it comes to models. But actually, that's, you know, that's just not the case. It's very hard for the public and, and, and parliament to find out information um, about models. So the, um, the COVID modelling was actually quite unique in that respect. We looked at uh, a sample of about um, 75 models in our work and we found no information at all and the public domain on, on 45 of those. And then the rest, there'd be, sort of, be a spectrum from just bare details to the full model itself published. Um, and, and we also, when we looked at the, the registers of business critical models that government departments had, only four departments had updated there since 2017. So it's so not very much out there. Um, and when we recognise there's a cost to transparency, it's expensive putting things out. You've got to you've got to do the legwork, as Neil said, to sort of explain the caveats and you know, the, the limitations. Um, and so there will be a diff, there will be a range of um, variable public interest in publishing things. And so we've we've called for for the analysis function and for Treasury to really make it very clear um, what are the principles under which you'd expect departments to be making things transparent and available, uh, and and how
0: much how far do you need to go. Actually, I'll just follow up with you, because we've had one question come in that sort of follows up on that point. Um, just asking, who's responsible for pro- doing that sort of communication for the, the informed, interested member of the public to understand what the models are doing?
4: Who's, who should be responsible for the, for the publication? Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, I think it's, it's individual departments, which is, which is why it's, it often ends up falling by the wayside. Um, it'll depend on and, you know, the, the discretion of individual ministers. Um, but really, it should be, it's, it's, a standard, it's a standard expectation that it should be the norm um, unless there's compelling reasons for it not to be. And, and that's why having a, a clearer set of principles under which it's acceptable not to be transparent for whatever reason um, would, be, would be really helpful. And then again, as we talked about at the beginning, that, that oversight then of, um, the, of the extent to which those requirements are being met and adhered to. Uh, and we think there's a role there for for the functions, particularly the finance function and the analysis function, to um, to build that into the assessment frameworks that they have around their functional standards, um, to actually help departments understand how well they're doing against the,
0: the requirements of the standards. Um, I should just say, Will Moy from Full Fact did ask about um, what stands in the way of making government models public. So uh, I think I have... Covered his question, but that it was a very it prominent. is costly also. So you got
4: it is, there's an expense to this. So you, there is a trade-off here, um, but but it's I think it's, it's it brings enough benefit that it's worth it in most cases.
0: Great. Um, so um, question from Tom King, tuning in from Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, to what extent can the uncertainty in models help understand exactly what data collection is needed to improve understanding and include supporting dynamic evaluation? Richard, I'll come to you first because you touched on this already.
3: Uh, I, I think that they can and if you if you think about the way that traditionally in in economics you present uncertainty is that you rely on fan charts which are based on past forecast errors and that approach to uncertainty was basically completely useless during the pandemic because the future was going to look nothing like the past, at least for a period. And it was very much going to depend on a set of variables which weren't dictating uh, the course of GDP um, consumption or anything else. And so you had to rely on specifying on un- specifying uncertainty based on the values of particular parameters. And uh, the key one was how effective was this vaccine going to be in allowing our, in allowing our economic lives to go back to normal. If it was very effective Basically, the economy can go back to something very close to what it was before. If it was not, then we had, we had to have a different kind of economy and a painful process of adjustment to that, most likely. Once we had a read on the value of the effectiveness of vaccines, suddenly we knew which one of those worlds we were more likely to be in, and you could put more weight on one of these scenarios versus, versus the other, so, um, so really important. Mm-hmm.
0: Ruth, from your work, I mean, is that a dynamic process that happens within government to try and improve models? Or?
4: Well, well, it certainly should be. So, you know, we, we recognise that, um, certainly at the start of the pandemic, there, there were trade-offs between value for money and the and sort of the speed and the scale of, of response that was needed. And so we've, we've tried in our, in our audit work to really look at how well those trade-offs were understood and managed rather than, than trying to look with you know, perfect hindsight. Um, but I think where it's apparent that there is uncertainty um, and it's, it's not clear what, what, the, what the best approach is. It's having that, that iterative, that feedback loop um, to monitor and to understand, um, you know, what new information might then help you to calibrate that your, your approach and your views. Uh, for example, I know ONS put in place their new business, their a survey looking at the sort of impacts of COVID on business directly as a result of, of, you know, a clear data gap in some of the models. So you really need, even if there's insufficient information at the beginning to make a really good decision and you still have to act. There's no excuse then for not, uh, as, as things progress, trying to fill those gaps and, and you know, improve modeling and the assumptions.
2: I mean, yes, it's been critical throughout the pandemic. Um, I mean, right at the start, um, assessing the severity, what, what's the you know, infection fatality ratio of this virus? That came to uh, be important again with the Omicron wave where all the different models were saying we're gonna have an enormous Wave of Omicron infection, but we don't. We had some anecdotal reports from South Africa, maybe milder. And that then you jump into doing what I spent all of most of December doing detailed data to actually get estimates of severity. Um, other examples I mean, early in the pandemic, we would, didn't really know how many people were being infected. Most people weren't being tested, but even when we started handing out tests, probably only a subset of infected people got um, tested. And that poses real problems to tracking immunity in the population, really knowing how, how large the epidemic is. And so things like the um, ONS infection survey were created to address that specific gap in, and, and informed, to some extent to inform modeling, but really informed decision-making. Ben, do you have
0: anything to add on that one?
1: Um, no, not really. I mean, I just want to briefly come back to this cost-benefit point about transparency. I mean, in terms of, we've seen how important public reaction is in influencing outcomes. So, if you get a, a situation where you can get good information to public and to um, to the public uh, through timely release of data. Uh, it's definitely worth it, I think, because that influences how people act. So yes, there may be a cost in producing this information, but if you think about the whole ecosystem, if you like, and the whole scheme of things, I think the, the, the benefits are very much uh, weigh on, the, uh, on, the, on the on the openness and transparency side of things.
2: And a shout out for things like the Science Media Centre, which I think during the pandemic did a good job in conveying both science and modelling.
3: a question i think probably mainly for ruth but the others might know something about it as well um, to what extent do you think the sort of reliance particularly in departments on central point estimates might be linked to capabilities within the civil service resource devoted to resilience and preparing for sort of worst outcomes i mean to what extent are departments i guess Slightly restrained in that they only really have capacity to focus on sort of the central case, and not a huge amount of resource to devote towards emergency planning, risk preparedness, that sort of thing. Thanks.
4: Yeah, a, a great, great question. I think and we've we've just produced some um, some work on sort of preparedness and resilience in, in the civil service, where um, we, we think there is quite a bit more that that can be done. I think it, it is there's certainly a, a cost dimension to this. Um, a capability dimension and also a cultural dimension. Um, so, you, you know, we, we find that that uncertainty analysis is much easier done if it's done by design. So, if it's built into a model from the start, uh, you can automate qu- quite a bit of it. Um, you know, the, the, what we heard of as barriers were, were, were time, difficulties in um, you know knowing what was possible with particular software, um, but 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 mostly it was it was the sort of the demand for that analysis demand from the top. So I think it's um, it, you know it, it's it's a it's a range of things, but the the starting point is that perhaps there's insufficient demand for it, which is which is partly why we've we've called you know we think a lot of um, a lot of the culture in government can be set by what's demanded essentially, which is which is one of the reasons why I, one of our recommendations is for Treasury and indeed the OBR to sort of make more um, sort of. Uh, you know, not, not accept central point estimates um, as a, as a sort of matter of routine, ask for more information from the departments in the hope that that trickles down further more into, um, in, into what, what departments do
0: then on the ground. Right. Does anyone else want to comment on that one? We've okay, got another question in the room. <coughs> uh, Richard, I mean, you've just published a report on lots of the big risks out there. It
3: is, yeah, and I think to some extent, uh, so we've, we've been producing a report of the OBR called the Fiscal Risks Report since 2017, and, it, and it's precisely aimed at trying to get at this idea that basically the future is much less certain than you think. Um, there is a tendency toward wishful thinking uh, in fiscal policy making to always hope for the best but not do enough planning for the worst. And I think to some extent, the pandemic has helped that endeavor by just showing that catastrophic risks are real things that can have very big impacts on GDP add a lot to government deficits and debts do come along um, with more f- they, they are both more severe and more frequent than you think and I, and I, I do think that a, a change in mentality that needs to happen in the 21st century is just to accept the fact that it is a lot riskier than what we got used to experiencing in the latter part of the 20th century which was steady growth um, with short you know short sharp recessions which then recover to uh, to uh, periods of otherwise steady growth with low inflation and full employment. Um, uh, instead, you know, we've had a financial crisis, we had a pandemic. Now we've got a war in Europe and an energy crisis. All these things have been very damaging to the economy. They've been very expensive for public finances and they're the sorts of events which when you're, when you're a fiscal policymaker, you need to keep in mind that you don't know what the next thing is going to be when it comes along, but it will almost certainly come along at some point and you need to aim off for that um, actually arrive. Right. Neil, do you
0: have any on how you...
2: It is, I don't have a simple answer. I mean, it is, I think you almost need to cost the risks and, and, and the financial costs of crying wolf. I mean, because we did see this at the beginning of the pandemic. In some sense, I can look back and say, our very uncertain estimates of severity transmissibility we had in early February, basically told us what was going to you know unfold from then on. And I should have been colleagues of mine would, indeed believe this. Um, I should have been jumping up and down, we should you know, have locked down, sealed our borders at that point. But that you're dealing with immense amounts of uncertainty, fourfold in each direction, maybe even tenfold, based on tiny amounts of data. I don't have the right answer to that. In some sense, you want to cost, well, what would have been the economic cost of getting that wrong? I mean, the political cost would have been huge, but even just from an economic perspective, calling that sort of decision wrong has a cost, but it also has potential benefits. And in theory, there could be some research around that. The practical practicalities of it though, and the politics of it are completely different. I mean, I doubt ministers would have moved at that point, um, given that level of uncertainty.
0: Ben, do you have any thoughts? I guess as a journalist, you have a choice about what to cover and.
1: How do you think about these? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it's sort of the, the tail risks, if you like. I think I always like to think when I'm talking about economic data, we don't always have it for a very long period. So we're talking about maybe a hundred years for GDP data, sort of and that's sort of backward created and labor market data, we don't always have it. So I think as a journalist, I always like to say, well, we haven't seen anything on this scale. On the data that we have, and sometimes that data only goes back a short period, sometimes it goes back further. I think specifying the period over which you have data and which you can make a claim about something's likelihood is quite important, actually, and probably not done often enough.
0: Ruth, do you want to add anything?
4: Or... Um, no, I think, I think it's been largely covered. I mean, I, just, I guess maybe just to say that... Um, it's, it's that point around contingency planning and the importance of, of, of proper risk management. Um, and that, you know, while government can't prepare for every eventuality, um, it's about having a good awareness of, of what are the scenarios that are plausible um, and have a high enough potential impact that it's, that it's worth preparing for. Um, and what we found when we looked at, you know, pre-existing pandemic preparedness plans, um, they, they didn't have adequate plans around things like you know, shielding or um, unemployment support or, um, or indeed, you know, take into account um, sort of the you know, com- mechanisms to compensate local authorities for um, for a, uh, a drop in income. So e- even though DLAC, which like just the department for for communities and looked after local authorities, had stress tested um, local authority finances to um, to you know economic shocks. The what they had stressed, the, the actual economic impact of the pandemic far outweighed anything that had been stress tested. So. I think it's, 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 in, it's in general they, it's, it's not necessarily about preparing for every single risk, but thinking about the, the types the categories of impacts which could result from an, a range of different risks and then having some kind of plan in place for those
0: that uh, you know that's really, really important. Right. And probably final question I think we're going to have time for.
1: Um, thank you. Um, so you mentioned the estimates about French, the drop in French GDP and um, if, if modelling is about closing or shrinking the gap between the sort of possibility and the probability of something, Um, to what extent are cognitive biases built into models, because modelling teams are human beings, Um, and things like framing uh, or anchoring? And uh, is um, is that something that you have a particular view on? Neil, do you want to
0: start? I
2: mean, yes, I think it is a risk did it play out in the pandemic maybe to a degree but it's certainly a risk we're conscious of and even groups such as spy m and sage have that same risk of, of let's say groupthink or or this affirmation bias um it is a difficult thing to move completely disregard i, I would say it didn't I think in some of the the external public debate, you might, I mean, I've been accused of wanting to retain political power. Well, I never had political power. I think the cognitive biases are not around policy solutions or policy options or that, you know, epidemiological modelers wanted a particular outcome. They're more subtle than that. They're more along the lines of all scientific researchers is once you've come up with a set of estimates I mean, and in a belief that this this is how the system is operating, it requires quite a big shove for you to change that. We're not perfect absorbers of information and processes of information. So it's less on the political policy side, much more on just how much information it takes to change people's perspectives on on the drivers.
4: There are some things that you can do, though. So, you know, there's a good good, good practice ways to try and mitigate some of those risks. You know, one is comparing... Um, you know, modelled results to actual out-turn results, and that's something which the OBR does with the, you know, the forecast evaluation reports. Um, other thing is really inviting scrutiny of assumptions from from external stakeholders to get that challenge. So there are, there are things that you can do to help improve that.
2: Yeah, there's the kind of red team. Um, so the US didn't actually use this time, but in the 2009 pandemic, um, I mean, I was on various government advisory boards in the US as well as the UK, but I was on particularly the CDC red team. And, and there that's a deliberate parallel advisory structure which is put in place to challenge you know, the dominant view, let's say, and, and, and provide constructive criticism, let's say. And I'm not, there was an element of that within the UK advisory structure, but it wasn't a, a well-defined role.
3: And I think you definitely saw examples of what you talked about during the pandemic in terms of our economic understanding of it. And the best example is perhaps we had three lockdowns over the course of the pandemic. We saw the first one reduced output by around 25%. Everyone's expectations when the second lockdown came along in December was that it was gonna be another 25% fall in output, but actually what everyone underestimated was how much people's behavior had adapted to lockdown conditions and how much of the economy could actually be re- stay open. In one form or another, either electronically or through delivery um, between the first and second lockdown. So the second time around, output only fell by around, I think, 11, 12%. And then by the time of the third one, the fall in output was only in the, in the single digits, and so, and consistently, economists, um, including ourselves, underestimated how adaptable the economy proved to be to these kind of restrictions. Because economies are dynamic systems; people learn um, uh, from experience, and, and so in that sense, getting hooked, getting, getting uh, preoccupied by one particular data point and thinking that the future is always going to be like the present um, or the recent past is a mistake that one always has to make, and you have to always sort of revisit your priors when you get new data.
1: Ben, do you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I I would agree with everything that Richard and the panellists said. I think biases and groupthink are, unconscious biases and groupthink are inevitable. But yes, I mean, transparency and clarity about assumptions enable others to sort of spot them and also... As Ruth said, retrospective evaluation of your things, that's a learning process. So I think these are these are inevitable things, but we do have very good tools for confronting them and addressing them.
0: Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we are now out of time, so huge apologies to those of you who sent in questions that I didn't manage to get to. Um, but I hope you have all enjoyed what I thought was a very interesting discussion of these issues and something that government will continue to have to grapple with and hopefully be taking on board lots of the lessons that uh, Ruth's report and others have been highlighting. Um, just to say a huge thank you to our panellists, to Ruth, Neil, Ben, and to Richard. Please, <clears> please <throat> <have> a <throat> so we have the back. And thank you very much to uh, the forum at Imperial College for supporting this, which is the last of a series of five events. The others, you can find the recordings of on our website if you missed them live at the time. Um, but anyway, please do join us again for the next IFG event. But thank you very much. Thank you.